This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I am a normal Chris Kreitcho this time around. Whoa. Which is good, because, I mean, if we'd recorded this a week ago when we planned to, I was more like Hulk smash Chris Kreitcho. It was abnormal Chris Kreitcho. Thankfully, it wasn't Hulk <laughs> smash at me. It was something unrelated. Glory yes. be. And I'm Stephen Caradini, and today we're going to talk about regulation of emerging technologies, when it is appropriate, when it is inappropriate, and when it might be both appropriate and inappropriate, depending on where you are in the world. Yep. One of the things that's interesting about this idea of technological rejection, which we've hinted at throughout the season so far, is that there are different ways and different degrees of rejection. And one of those, as we alluded to last time, is the tension and the interplay between sort of popular level acceptance or rejection and governmental or policy level acceptance or rejection of a technology. And last time we were talking about nuclear technology and how in many ways the response there has been popular rejection and governmental appreciation and continuing to approve of this technology. Today, we're going to look at a place where, despite all the popular sentiment in favor of a technology, it might actually really behoove us to regulate it as a sort of hook into this discussion more broadly, and that is blockchain. Cryptocurrencies, crypto coins, ICOs. Crypto cats. Wait, Crypto no, that's different. Crypto cats. Actually, I think it's technically on the blockchain, so there you are. Um, oh, well, there's Crypto Kitties and Crypto Cat. Those are different. Crypto Kitties are on the blockchain. Crypto Cat is not. How am I unsurprised? You got to look that up. It's funny. It's, it's 2018. And basically, if you want to be a startup right now, you just sprinkle some blockchain crypto awesome on top of it, and you're good to go. At least that's what I hear. I mean... If people will give you money, that's you just do whatever people will give you money to do. That's how. But if they only give you crypto money, hey, I mean, is it really money? Venture capital is sort of money too. In that, <laughs> when when it disappears, they just write it off. So it's not really oh. money in the same sense. So uh, beyond our quibbles with uh, finance, which are not the point of this episode, even though. Crypto is often used for finance. The thing that's relevant to us about crypto is that it has massive popular uptake. Now, popular being a little squidgy here because... Relative. Because yeah. the what I mean by popular is that there are a lot of people who are interested in and developing the space of crypto. And this is everything from... Chinese Bitcoin miners to, yes, ICO offerings to people who are trying to think of other uses for the blockchain, like uh, smart contracts and these types of things. There's a lot of stuff going on in this space. And I say popular in another sense. All of that is happening with the weird exception of the fringy cases where people are trying to argue that this would be great for city government. <laughs> the majority of this is happening outside governmental spaces. It's not right. overseen by the various agencies that oversee financial transactions. It's not overseen by 
the various uh, organizations that are in charge of business matters in the United States. And it's not even, as far as I am aware, that regulated in Europe, which is kind of amazing. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. it's more regulated in Europe because everything is more regulated in Europe, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be a whole lot more regulated in Europe. So there's a lot of stuff going on, may or may not be detrimental to aspects of society, and this includes financial meltdown, energy use, all sorts of weird ethical Things that are baked into the concept of triple accounting, which is what crypto is built on. All of that is happening, and it's just kind of in its own echo chamber. There's no oversight. So to take a step back for a minute, for the sake of some of our listeners who may be saying, crypto, cura, what? Triple accounting? (laughs) What's a triple accounting? Let's talk for a moment about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general and triple accounting and how this all works. Because how it all works, as is often the case with technologies, is really important for understanding how many of these concerns come to play. For example, Stephen mentioned energy use. And you might be thinking, how in the world does some kind of computerized currency have impacts on energy use? That's weird. So It is weird. But it, it really is. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more generally came out of research that was published almost exactly a decade ago now, which basically just uses some smart math. I'm profoundly oversimplifying for the sake of making this a short and popular level episode rather than getting into the math, which I could because it's interesting, but I will spare you that, dear listeners. Basically says, we're going to keep a ledger just like we would in normal accounting. But this ledger is going to be public and shared, and because of the math, you will never be able to alter the history of it without everybody else knowing that you altered the history of it. Now, this is a pretty good idea because this makes for a way that you can have public validation that your transactions, for example, are what you said they were. And this means that you can have a way of exchanging things, whether that's some kind of currency or some kind of information or whatever in a way that doesn't require you to directly trust the party with whom you're doing business. So the way that it works is that if you buy something, you are the first person. You write down digitally, I want to buy this thing and I want to send this money to this person to buy this thing. That is entered into the ledger. And the ledger is the second party of this transaction. So you go to the ledger, then the ledger bounces it back to the person who you're actually buying it from. Hey, this person wants to buy this thing from you. And so the person at the other end says, yes, I have that thing to sell. And so I will then go back to the ledger and say, yes, this transaction is happening. And so then the thing will exchange hands and everybody knows that this has happened. And everybody, I mean everybody, because the public ledger, depending on how many people are in the ledger, is how many people have to acknowledge that this transaction has happened. So if you have 50 people that are all in this blockchain together, because there can be small blockchains and big blockchains, then all 49 
other people who aren't buying this thing, including the seller, have to agree that this thing has happened. And usually this is a simple transaction. You just check that the other two people have said yes and yes, and then you're good to go. But if there's fraud, then you start to have more complicated difficulties. And there's obviously math that backs this up and fixes the problems and people get denied when they're supposed to be denied and things like that. But the incredibly important part is that everybody who's accessing the blockchain from a technical perspective has to agree that this thing has happened. Mm -hmm. And the name blockchain, which gets thrown around in this sort of almost mystical sense a lot of times, the blockchain is just the public ledger. It's a chain of blocks of verified with this mathematical formula that yes, these things went down as we claim they went down. So it's not actually all that magical. Right. The thing that makes it magical is that, one, you can verify things, which is why IBM Mm -hmm. sends their commercials across your platforms, whether they're television or whatever, explaining you can track this tomato from the farm to your house. Theoretically, if you were getting down to granular levels of tomato tracking, you could do that. Uh, Another thing that it does is that it allows you to deal with people that you inherently don't trust. So if you're expecting to deal with somebody that you trust, you can say, hey, give me the money in a week and it'll be great. And then they send you the money because you trust them. If you're dealing with somebody who you don't trust, and you say, hey, send me the money in a week. And then they say, we sent you the money. And I say, I didn't receive it. And they say, sucks to be you, lost in the mail. This is what the blockchain will stop. You can say, hey, look, the blockchain says you never sent it. So send me my money or... I guess I'll threaten you on the internet or something because there's no <laughs> oversight of this. There's no legal backing for many, not all, but many blockchains. Right. Now, the next interesting technical part of this is that when Bitcoin itself was introduced, there was another wrinkle on top of just the math, and that was this idea of mining. And you've probably heard the idea of mining Bitcoins. Which is the dumbest metaphor ever for what is actually happening. It's true. The idea here is that there is a limited supply of this currency, and supply is unlocked by performing mathematical computations on your computer. That are verifying all of the other transactions that have actually happened in Bitcoin. Right. And so as time goes on, the cost of each of those further verifications goes up because there's more to verify and there's more math to do. And this creates what is known as an asymptotic bound. There's an upper limit and eventually it will actually be hit. It's not truly asymptotic. It just behaves roughly asymptotically. I'll put a link in the show notes for those of you who don't remember asymptotes from calculus. I was about to say, you're you're starting to lose our audience here. (laughs) There will be a link in the show notes. Don't worry about it. Just Basically, every transaction gets harder than the one before. Right. And so you're not really mining in the sense that you're discovering anything. You're just getting rewarded for doing the work right. of actually verifying all of the Bitcoin. So, Because when you do that, you get Bitcoin yourself. Right. You are, quote unquote, mining a Bitcoin. Every time you complete one of those actions, you get well, not, one unit of Bitcoin. Not one of those actions. Lots of calculations. It's not like you're just doing one calculation. So, And that's the problem. <laughs> No, but when you complete the required... Yes, the required amount of calculations. Right. 
So here's the trick. That gets harder all the time. But Bitcoin has also gotten more valuable, which means it's more valuable to do that. But, and this is where it gets really weird. It's a virtuous circle. What? In some ways, it's a virtuous circle. We want you to do this thing. You want to do this thing. And then we can all together have a nice thing. Because you have rewards, and I, we get the thing that we want. So in some ways, let it not be said that Bitcoin is exploitative on an individual people working together sort of scale, because it's not. Like, people do this voluntarily. The downsides end up all being mostly structural. So here's the thing. You have to run all these computations on your computer. And your computer requires electricity to run. And the more complicated these and the more of these you have to do to get another Bitcoin, the more energy it takes. And so people have started putting together Bitcoin farms and leveraging massive GPU compute power in parallel to run through these calculations so that they can continue to earn more Bitcoins. So much so that the processing power required to generate more Bitcoins is rapidly coming to a point where it's actually taking a noticeable fraction of the world's total energy consumption. And maybe it's just me, but that sounds crazy to me. Well, it it depends because there are lots of things that take up fractions of the world's energy supply. That's how percentages work. The uh, I mean noticeable fractions. Yeah. Though. Like my computer's taking a fraction of the world's energy supply to talk to Steven. However, that fraction is infinitesimal. Right. The fractions of the world's energy usage that Bitcoin is taking up are no longer infinitesimal. Yeah. They're like, hey, this is coming up on like a tenth of a percent of total world energy usage. What? That's a number that's kind of insane. Yeah. And so while we'll link a couple articles that show how ridiculous these things have gotten, which includes people setting up uh, giant server farms outside hydroelectric dams in rural areas and <laughs> other sorts of weirdnesses, we're going to accept Chris's supposition here <laughs> that this massive amount of energy use is a bad thing, ultimately... Especially if it continues to grow like it has. That's been. what I was about to say. If it continues to grow exponentially as it would if more blockchains, because Bitcoin is only one blockchain, as it would if more blockchains were instituted, especially at scale, things would start to get very weird very quickly. So we're going to go with that supposition and we're going to say, okay, so we have a situation <laughs> here where something that is debatably good because some right. other episode will talk about how the underlying trust issues of uh, Bitcoin and other types of cryptocurrencies vis-a-vis -vis almost all of blockchain technology itself is sort of problematic to extremely mm -hmm. problematic, depending on how you interpret that. We'll talk about that some other time. Right now, we're going to talk about the structural issues related to what do you do when things that people are voluntarily doing, exchanging information, collaborating, like this is not a noxious sort of activity at an interpersonal level, although obviously you can find right. bad actors anywhere, but mm -hmm. at a macro level, like I said, it's a virtuous circle. Uh, it has externalities. It has things that are happening as a result of it that are bad, and it has as I mentioned at the very beginning, almost no oversight. 
So the question here is, should you do oversight? Who should do that oversight? And how and what should that oversight be? Right. And it gets really complicated for some of the reasons that Stephen pointed to a couple minutes ago. The European Union is surprisingly not regulating it much yet. And America is basically like, whatevs, do what you want. <laughs> and <laughs> that seems like capitalism. You, you do that. <laughs> Keep on. Let's say that America decides to do something wildly uncharacteristic for America over the last 30 years and regulate it. I mean, 30 years is being generous, but we'll go with that. At least since the Reaganomics era. I mean, yeah, okay, we'll just stick with that. At least. (laughs) At that point, great, American Bitcoiners are regulated. And the exchange might have some some degree of flux, depending on how the regulation is implemented. Perhaps America says, thou shalt not blockchain. Good luck enforcing that, because it's kind of like saying, thou shalt not encrypt anything, which didn't really go well for obvious reasons called, you can't actually stop people from sharing math because it's just math. There are fundamental challenges with blocking the sharing of encryption, and it'd be really hard to track down, hey, is the person in this house using blockchain, or are they just running games all the time? Because those signatures happen to look really similar. And so if any one party in a global economy, and this gets to a lot of things going on in our economies right now in general, but it's particularly true of some of these technologies which are inherently distributed. Yeah. If any one party wants to regulate them, but none of the other parties do, or only some of the parties do, or they don't agree on how it should be regulated, even if they agree that it should be regulated, well, you've got problems now. So one of the only places where any type of crypto regulation has been going on, even in a significant rumor to potentially actually existing sort of way, is in South Korea, which is interesting because they are early adopters of crypto as they are early adopters of a good chunk of technologies. That's part of what they do there. And so there has been, and I don't know the latest on this because it's been about a month since I really checked it out, but there are there have been great fluctuations in the value of Bitcoin and its associated cryptocurrencies. Almost all cryptocurrencies track along the same line as Bitcoin if they're public, quote-unquote, public. Um, There have been great fluctuation in the values of those currencies based on when anyone, but particularly when Korean government agencies say, hey, we're going to regulate this in particular ways. We're going to maybe shut down uh, trading places for uh, cryptocurrencies, or maybe we're going to uh, regulate the types of currencies that are available, or there's been a lot of speculation, and some of those things may even have become law recently. I, Like I said, I am not up on the latest uh, Korean news on cryptocurrency, which, you know... <laughs> We all we all got to make decisions. <laughs> Why not? Steven? We all got to make decisions in our lives. Um, <laughs> we will put a link with the latest in the show notes when we publish this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so that's one place where Korea has made regulatory overtures, and America has also done a minor amount of this. But um, and the cost, the value of cryptocurrencies went down. So in some ways, the interconnectedness isn't 
totally enmeshed in a way, or maybe it is totally enmeshed in a way that if one person does something, one actor does something, one state does something, there are ripple effects across the right. the cryptocurrency format platform, we'll call it. Uh, and that's intriguing because in some ways, as Chris compared it to the crypt- encrypting battle, you were seeing that you can't route around some of the regulation, right? So you can't just like leave Korea out of right. the crypto game. I guess you could in a long-term sense, but short-term effects of leaving Korea out of the crypto game are bad value for crypto, which is, again, sort of a nebulous concept on its own. But there's a effect here of things that happen there. And that's the tension that we're most interested in with this regulatory concept is that should America regulate Bitcoin? Well, it depends on whether you think that it's a giant bubble and it's going to burst like 2001 or whether you think that uh, it's something that's going to become mature and become a element of fiduciary stability. You know, it's going to have things that make it look like an actual investment Whatever your long-term projected idea of what crypto looks like financially will determine whether or not you want to regulate it, and you'll even be able to find comparable regulatory frameworks over the past 150, 200 years of banks. This is why I was saying more than 30 years of regulation, because we've regulated banks in a lot of different ways over the past 200 years. You can find types of regulation that America has done that would be comparable to the types of regulation you might want to see on crypto. However, what does that mean for the EU if the United States does this thing? Because crypto is not a national thing. It's an international thing, purposely international. The closest analogy, and this gets back at that reference to the crypto wars, is how cryptography is treated. And one of the things that makes this challenging for countries like those in the EU, like the United States, like others with a strong commitment to personal liberties and democracy and so on, is that those commitments mean it is harder to clamp down on things like this than it is for, say, China or Saudi Arabia or other places where, yeah, you want to use cryptographically secure communications? Mm, No. That's our answer. No. Yeah. You may not. And if we can't snoop your traffic because you've encrypted it, we're going to come to your house and we're going to have a nice little talk. And by nice little talk, I don't mean a nice little talk. I mean, you could go to jail. So it's very difficult to do that. And those differences in regulatory regime because let's be honest that is a kind of That's regulatory a very regime. extreme but obviously <laughs> regulatory framework right those don't seem viable today in the united states or france or germany or lots of countries that are more on this end of the spectrum and how we approach regulation of and control of the internet but that's not a given and so yeah it is conceivable 
that something very bad could come out of this, that some terrorist organization could start using this as their primary or only means of distributing money around. And the US and Great Britain and the EU and a bunch of other countries could come together and say, nope, we're going to regulate the heck out of that. And China could say, yeah, its utility has run its course and we're on board with you. And all of a sudden, you could be in a very, very different spot, regardless of popular will, even if it were a one-off, even if it were a one bad actor poisons the whole thing. The whole well. There you go. That's... Wells are things that a bad actor could poison. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and it's, so that scenario that Chris just laid out is a situation where the populace might just be in love with crypto coins and the a coalition of of nations could say hey as a threat to insert trendy international security trendy words here we <laughs> have agreed that we're going to ban x y and z now part right. of the the trick there is the constitutions of various places you know there's a a reasonable way that i could imagine that you know places that have much more totalitarian regimes could just like limit the amount of electricity that goes to individual addresses. And that would solve that problem. You know, you would, you would make a cap and then there would be no more Bitcoin mining, yada, yada, yada. Uh, But here a little harder to enforce in the United States. That's not a thing that people would be, even that the government would have much stomach for. That's not really eat on both sides of the spectrum. That's not a thing that people right. are really going to be interested in for different reasons. And so barring this supernatural soup supernatural, barring the supernatural, <laughs> uh barring this supranational coalition, there are other sorts of regulatory ways of working together. There are uh smaller agreements, so there are things like right. NAFTA um and there are things like trade agreements, although there may be no trade agreements left in the world by the time that this episode airs, <laughs> uh, where individual countries or regions agree to work together towards a certain end. And they're mm-hmm. usually less strictly regulatory. They're more right. suggestive. They're more saying, here are the goals. Pursue them in ways that would fit with the overall ends, but that are amenable to or at least possible in your country or region so there's some interpretive flexibility right one of the ways that this kind of thing could play out and i think the way it's most likely to and i think i would say probably the best outcome in countries like the united states from where i sit today is something along the lines of this needing to be conducted along certain public ledgers, not merely private ledgers, and then being subject to the same kinds of rules that monetary transfers are in general, perhaps using the good properties of blockchain to that end. And then it falls under things like money laundering and other illegal forms of money transfer that already exist today, basically incorporating it into the existing regulatory schemes that are broadly good and healthy, albeit probably with some modifications for those severely adverse effects. It might be, for example, that we say, hey, we're not doing Bitcoin mining anymore because 
that's going to have a bad effect on the environment. However, we're open to the use of blockchain technologies, which do not require that particular approach to mining, which have flexible amounts of currency in the systems and so I on. disagree that that is going to be... Well, actually, I would agree that that might be something that could happen, but I would disagree that that would be the best outcome because that just shuffles the cards to someone else's table and then you're still hurting the environment because if you're going to be using blockchain at all you're going to have to do the calculations and you're going to have to use a bunch of energy to do it it's immutable it is it is immutable in the sense that there will be some energy use it is not immutable in the sense of how much energy use or the drive to create more currency that way those were specific limitations put in with bitcoin itself and that currency mechanism so changing the associated currency mechanisms can change the incentives around how much energy is needed to be used to do certain things that's true and that's true for that could bitcoin. change the game substantially that's true for bitcoin but for blockchain more broadly you're going to run into the same problems no matter how long you're running blockchain. The longer and longer you run it, the the heavier and heavier the requirements of registering and the multiple nodes that everyone has, that's going to get more and more heavy. Even if you don't have fully every single node check in to every single other node when you're doing your transactions, right. you're still going to have a huge volume that accretes. And the accretion is the problem in my mind. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that points us at one of the questions we won't get to in this episode, because we're about out of time. But at the externalities being so significant that maybe it's not worth doing at all, maybe banks are actually not such a bad idea. Yeah, I I do think that this is one of the times where seemingly illogically... This particular technology, the value that it gives back to society is not as great as the detriments that it poses to society, particularly in the long term. So this is like a true winning slowly thing, which is like, <laughs> you know, I own some Bitcoin just for the experiment, not Bitcoin, I own some Ethereum, which is a different type of <laughs> cryptocurrency, uh, for the experience of of understanding it a little better. So I have a hundred bucks right. in it. It's not much. But if my hundred bucks disappeared because Ethereum disappeared, in the long term, winning slowly thinking of this, I would be totally fine with that because as I've watched this and as I've seen the things that I've seen since January when I started owning crypto, it is a a thing that is one, very speculative, which is fine. People speculate all the time. But it encourages speculation. Two, mm -hmm. it is, as I mentioned just a minute ago, an accretive technology that will, without, in my mind, without fail, become an incredibly difficult technical burden that will translate to an incredibly difficult uh, environmental and even electrical grid burden. Right, And I just don't think that the value that Bitcoin has, the value that Ethereum and all the cryptocurrencies have, is worth all of those externalities. Right. I'm, on reflection, inclined to agree. I think there may be ways to employ some of the good ideas in it while setting hard limits on them, capping the lengths of chains, forcing resets, etc., 
So it's not necessarily the case that you have to toss out all of that. However, oh man, I share much of your skepticism. Oh man, I was finally harsher on something than you were. Like <laughs> this might be like one of the few times in the history of winning slowly that I was not more <laughs> bullish than you on something. It's true. There, it's right true. there. Put the stamp on it. Stephen Caradini was a bear on Bitcoin. As we'll talk about when we come back to talk about the cultural and other negative ramifications of this later in the season, I will say as a preview of that, that even insofar as I am somewhat more <laughs> bullish on this than Stephen What's is, up? as a technology at least, I also share much of the skepticism, and I really think we're probably better off just using banks. <laughs> Crazy talk. Uh, yeah, I actually think it's—we'll get to that eventually. We'll get there. <laughs> Thanks for listening, y'all. It's true. The music at the beginning of the episode was Heavy Eyes by Palm Ghosts. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. True story. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. Those we name every month include Kurt Klassen and Andrew Fallows. Thanks for sponsoring all this time, folks. We appreciate it. We really do. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. And if you want to reach out to us, you can reach out to us at Scaradini, at Chris Kreitcho, hello at winning slowly.org, or you can just flag us down wherever you find us. Or at winning slowly, that one too. At winning slowly as well. Yeah. And we're still thinking about setting up a P.O. box just because that would be be really fun. fun. It'd be very winning slowly. Until next time, thanks for listening. That may or may not be detrimental to various aspects of society, may or may not be detrimental to aspects of society, I can't even say it may or may not may or may not be detrimental to aspects of society scale because it's not like people do this voluntarily. Right. The downside ends up being that it's exploitative well, all the in another way. <laughs> <laughs>